live as children of the new reality when we're amidst children of the old reality everywhere we see. And that's the question before the Corinthians that Paul is laying forward. And today we come to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the most famous passages in the whole Bible. It's so poetic, the language is beautiful, and we hear this passage almost solely at weddings, right? 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the great love chapter. So that got me thinking about weddings. And I want to show you a picture here that you may recognize some, some people in this picture. Uh, the person on the left is clearly Clarissa. I don't know who the, or the right, right, sorry, I was turning around. That's clearly, I don't know who that other guy is. No, uh, that's me. So I have a couple of thoughts. This was 23 years ago in June. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts as I was looking at this picture. One is... Uh, I was a pretty good-looking guy back in the day, you know? Like, all right. <laughs> she, she is and still is better. That's exactly right. No, I say, what, I look at that and I go, what happened? I can blame it uh, not on ministry. I blame it on six children and the fact that I discovered deep dish pizza, okay? That, the, those problems all together. But uh, I, when I look at this picture, I, I think a whole lot of feelings bubble to the surface for me. Um, I can remember it, it, wasn't, um, it wasn't really just less than two years before this that I met Clarissa, and I remember all the ushy-gushy feelings, you know, associated with love. I remember calling my mom on the phone from my dorm room at the Moody Bible Institute. You know, we had the long wires. I went out in the hallway, and the, the cord was like 20 feet long on our phones, you know. You walk down the hallway and get decapitated by all the phones hanging across the hallway. And, uh, but I remember saying, Mom... I met someone. <laughs> I was so excited. Uh, all these feelings. And then on this particular day, standing in front of the church next to Pastor Hughes, as we, we stood there and I looked to the back of the room, this beautiful church, and the doors opened and there was my bride. Oh, the feeling was just, oh, it was amazing. I had so many feelings associated with love and romance that day. I remember so many things. I remember my dad saying to me about a month before we got married, he said, Dave, I love Clarissa. I'm so glad you picked her, but I never expected you to end up with a blonde. <laughs> what? He goes, yeah, I always had a thing for brunettes. Okay, dad, <laughs> you know. I just, there's so, <laughs> random memory, sorry. Uh, there's so many good feelings that associated with that. And sometimes when we come to 1 Corinthians 13, and because we hear it so much at weddings, we think of our thoughts and feelings and we attach love to the ushy-gushy, ooey-gooey, romantic feelings associated with new love and weddings. And what I want you to do today is take all those feelings and all that association of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and wedding and romance and love, and I want you to take it in a metaphorical bag and stuff it in the bag and tie it off and light it on fire, okay? <laughs> because 1 Corinthians 13 has really nothing to do with weddings. It has really nothing in Paul's mind to do with ushy-gushy, ooey-gooey feelings of romance, in the context of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 has everything to do with spiritual gifts. It has nothing to do with weddings. And I wish that you could do this. You could set aside all those things and embrace this simple idea that we need each other, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 
Aaron did a great job last week amidst us shoving our face full of pancakes of talking about how we need each other and we're all different and we should relentlessly pursue diversity. I remember that very distinctly from his message last time. We all have different gifts and sacrificial love is the motivator behind those gifts. Now for me, it's not that I associate ushigushi gushi feelings with, uh, of my wife to 23 years ago. I mean, the fact of the matter is, marriage settles in, and after 23 years, uh, there are still times where I look at my wife and I go, she's still got it. Like, yeah, you know, like, there's one good-looking lady over there, you know? That's my wife. I, I still feel that stuff, those things going on. Um, but frankly, what I wish someone would have showed us 20 years ago was what sacrificial love looks like in marriage. That it is hard and it is intentional. I wish someone would have showed us how to do love together. And that's what Paul has set out to do for the the Corinthians. Look at the last verse of chapter 12, because that's really attached to our passage today. Verse 31, and now he says, I will show you the most excellent way. Paul is about to give them a treatise on love from his own life and give them by example what love looks like. What I wish someone would have done for me 23 years ago. And what he's going to say is we should use our imperfect gifts in an imperfect world to display the currency of the perfect world that is yet to come. That is love. So today, I think what Paul essentially is going to have us do together is we are going to take a love test together, all right? What's your love score? We're going to take a self-evaluation love test today, and uh, it's going to uh, really be uh, a passage and really be a a self-test of your love based on living, loving like Jesus. We talk about bringing people together to live, love, and give like Jesus. Today is really about living like Jesus. Are you going to be obedient? That's what living like Jesus means. And then the second thing that I'm going to challenge you on, not only are you going to live like Jesus, but are you going to love like Jesus? What's the motivation behind everything you do? So let's ask three questions today that will help you, that will help you understand love and your own love, and do a little self-evaluation. The first question is this, what's my motivation? What's my motivation? This is a question that every one of us should ask as we think about love, as we think about serving each other, as we think about using our gifts in the body of Christ. The greatest motivator for using your spiritual gifts should be love. Look what Paul says, read along with me. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, I have not love. I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flames but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, remember, in, ba- in context and background, these Corinthians, there were some Corinthians there at the church in Corinth who were very arrogant. Some of them had said, we don't need Paul anymore. 
we're better than that. In fact, some of them have set each other up like to say, you know what, we're really the most important Christians in the church of Corinth. Our gifts are more important than others. We have a secret knowledge. We're kind of better than everybody else. And it's in this context that Paul is talking about love. The Corinthians extended class warfare into the church. And as we have talked about over and over, the one unique thing about the church is we bring people together from all different walks of life. And we come together with very little in common except for Christ. And what we come from every social, every economic level, the church of Corinth experienced the same thing. And they're fighting amongst themselves. And some people are elevating themselves and saying, you know what, we should be better than everyone else. And so Paul is going to tell them, it's not about how you're gifted. It's about what you do with your gifts and what motivates you. So now he's going to start with the gifts that they thought were the most important, the spiritual gifts, the things that they thought were fantastic and great. And what he is going to do now is he's going to start putting them at the bottom of the pile and putting people in their place. So he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels. So we'll get into tongues in chapter 14. I'm sorry, you're gonna have to wait before I talk about what that is. But it appears here there was two kind of languages, maybe a known language an earthly language, or more likely for these guys here, it was some kind of unspoken heavenly language that they boasted about. And apparently some of these guys were getting, and gals were getting all puffed up about it. Back in chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, Paul reminded of this. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. See, what's your motivation? Is your motivation just to know more so you can be arrogant and have a bunch of knowledge? It's one of the problems with Bible studies in the church. Is studying the Bible ever bad? No, but if you're only studying the Bible to puff up so you can feel arrogant about how much you know, that's the wrong motive. The right motive would be to know the Bible so you can pour out the love of Christ to others through you. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. You see, we've got to use the imperfect gifts in an imperfect world to display the currency of the perfect world that is yet to come, love. So Paul's going to list these, these, some of these gifts, a few of them, in order of least important and start at the bottom, which he pretty much flips the pyramid on these Corinthians. He says, uh, I can speak in tongues, and if I did, this, maybe this angelic language, but if I don't have love, I, I, I'm a gong or a cymbal. Now, they didn't have, you think of a symphony, right, and a big giant gong and the, just that, bong, that hollow sound it makes. Paul didn't have a gong like that back in the first century, but it's close enough. What they had was the same effect, right? Or a symbol. It's just this empty sound. I think of the Geico commercial with the triangle solo. Have you seen that one where this kid in the symphony comes out from the back and does a triangle solo and it's just absolutely ridiculous? That's what Paul has in mind here is that it's just worthless. It's just worthless, then he says, let's prophecy, and this is the case, prophecy is a good thing, but he's saying if he does it without love, if you do it for your own importance, it's nothing. Knowledge, faith to move a mountain, right? That would be a big deal. You do it without love, it's worthless. Now we get into important stuff. He says, if I sell all I have, all I possess to the poor, and surrender my body to the flames, I, I don't think that word flames is quite the right translation. What what? The, what Paul has in mind here is the ancient practice of one person 
selling themselves into slavery, taking that money and distributing it to the poor. In other words, I will give my life, literally, for the poor. I'll exchange it for money to help the poor. Paul's saying, even if I do that, even if I sold everything I have, including my freedom, but didn't do it for love, it's nothing. It's all about your motivation. Now, why would you use your gift to serve others? If it's without love, you're just essentially doing it to elevate yourself. The why is really important. If you're going to give your, your money away to others, that's a great thing to do. But if you do it without love, you're essentially just doing it to make yourself feel good. How many of us have given to the poor, given our time, gone on a missions trip, volunteered at the food pantry, gone downtown and served at a soup kitchen and did it because at the end of the day, we feel really good. Wow, I'm pretty awesome. I did something great. If that's your motivation, Paul says you're just a gong. It has to be love. Before you serve, before you use your spiritual gifts, you ought to ask the question, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? What's my motivation? Anything short of love for your brother and sister Christ is the wrong motivation. So that's the first question. What's my motivation? The next question that you should ask in your love self-evaluation today is what is, where's the fruit? Where is the fruit? Um, If I'm so messed up, or if I overthink things so much, what that I can't figure out where the fruit is. So, sometimes I have moments like that where I'm just so, like, I, I'm so confused. Like, I, I don't know what, I'm trying to figure out what my real motive is, but uh, I, I'm so conflicted on the inside, I can't really figure out the real motive. What if I'm doing this for love, or, but maybe I am just doing this for a selfishness. I don't know if you're anything like me, but sometimes I have a hard time figuring out my thoughts and my real true motivations for things, and I get all befuddled. If you're at that point where you're like, I don't know what my motivation is, Paul says the next question you should ask is, let's just look at the fruit of love. Well, look at the fruit. If you see fruit in love, you'll know it's love. You'll see the right fruit. Years ago, my wife bought an orange tree from Florida. She brought it back. It was a little tree. You put it in a pot. Um, She would set it out on the deck in the late spring, summer, fall. In the winter, she'd bring it inside. It was just this little, I mean, it stood about like this tall in a pot. And I remember her telling me, this is an orange tree, Dave. Okay, where are the oranges? We got to be patient, she'd say. So, you know, the next spring it'd go outside and, and all the other trees are, you know, blooming and blossoming with fruit and our tree had nothing on it. I'm like, I don't think this is an orange tree. There are no oranges. Be patient, Dave. Take it, bring it in for the winter, out in the spring. Again, no oranges. Bring it in for the winter, out for the spring. Finally, at the third or fourth you know, summertime when the, the oranges should be, there it was, this little tiny, it was like this big around. It was this little tiny, pathetic orange. But I said, huh, what do you know? It is an orange tree after all. It made oranges. You know a tree by its fruit. You think it's an apple tree? Apples should appear. So it is with love. Jesus used this fruit illustration all over. And he's saying, if you are motivated by love, some things will blossom on your tree. And this is how you can know. So Paul says the fruit of the wrong motivation is greed, selfishness, pride, and anger. Look at verse 4. 
Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not proud. It's not rude. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So he's saying, if you see these things pop up, if Clarissa had put that orange tree out and all, all of a sudden, you know, popped out on it like uh, something horrible like Brussels sprouts, I don't know if that can work, but like you go, that's not supposed to happen. That is clearly not an orange tree. Um, if, if that were to happen, you would know. Paul's saying, listen, let's look at the fruit. If you want to know what your motivation is, if love's there, let's look at the fruit that pops up. If it's any of these things, boasting, envy, pride, rudeness, self-seeking, not, or anger, if that shows up, keeping a, uh, holding a grudge, delighting in evil. If these things show up, you'll know your motivation isn't love. This word patience is interesting because then he talks in here about the proper fruit of love. Love is patient. This word in Greek means essentially the same thing as it does in English. It, it means that you simply don't get annoyed when things move too slowly. Um, I have a real problem with this. You know, I am so impatient. Unless it's on my timetable, but if it's on someone else's timetable, I can be so impatient, stuck in traffic, whatever, right? Um, But I constantly have to tell myself, Dave, people are more important than tasks, The goal is not to get the task done quickly. The goal is to walk with someone through the task. Sometimes that takes longer than I want. You know, my kids uh, each have chores. And uh, every one of my kids hates doing chores. And uh, I get tired of this. And I think this is a a universal axiom, by the way. Every teenager hates doing chores. It's not just mine. But we have this thing where Clarissa and I have very different styles of parenting. Her style is the better one. Her style is to say, we value our kids. We value teaching them work. We value saying, you're part of our family and you ought to contribute. You know, you're not the king or prince of this house. You should contribute. Uh, so when the di- you do dishes uh, and you leave them, someone else cleans them, you should do dishes, right? Now, I get tired of fighting. I get tired of reminding a kid for the 14th time to do dishes. And so I just say, fine, forget it. I'll just do the dishes for you. I'm so impatient with you. I'm just going to do it for you. And my wife lovingly reminds me, Dave, you're harming our children. (laughs) And she's exactly right. It's called enabling. It's really bad. And it's a fruit of impatience and conflict avoidance. Patience says, no, I love you enough that you're going to contribute to our family. And you're going to do the dishes. I just want to get the dishes done. They stink. It's a lot of dishes. Love is patient. Love is kind. This, I mean, the, the list goes on. I don't want to dive into every word, but just look at the list. Inspect these fruits. If kindness is there, it's a pretty good indicator that love is driving your service. But if you have to be the center of attention, if you're like, I have to be the best, love's not driving that action. Verse 5. This is a word that's really interesting. Love is not rude. This is one of those words that sometimes we have a hard time putting in context, but let me just do that for you. Rude means defying the sexual norms of the culture 
in 1 Corinthians, in the Corinthians culture. And this is the case where we learned earlier that in the church of Corinth, there was a man that was sleeping with his stepmom, and it was offensive and vile to everybody. Everybody in the culture even was, was, thought this was offensive and vile. And he's saying, listen, this guy that was doing that probably said, hey, I got freedom in Christ. I can do whatever I want. I don't care who it hurts. It doesn't matter. I got freedom. Paul says, that's not love. That's just rude. Love doesn't do that. Paul's telling this person, you don't care about the church. You don't care about the woman. You don't care about your stepmom. All you care about is you. Verse 5, keeps no record of wrongs. How can you love someone and hold their sin over their head? How can you love someone and want them to pay for what they've done? Love keeps no record. Verse 6, this is an, such an interesting phrasing. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. This is a weird pairing. It should say love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in good. Or love does not delight in falsehood, but in truth. Why does Paul pair evil with truth? Well, this is simply because Christians oppose evil with truth. When your brother or sister in Christ is hung up in something that's sinful and destructive, we love no one when we keep our mouths shut. In general, you and I are terrified of conflict. We are terrified. The worst thing you can do in Iowa, where we have this Iowa nice, like Minnesota nice, you know, we have this thing. The worst thing you can do is offend someone or say something hard that would make them uncomfortable. We Christians can't. When we're talking about loving each other, we can't look at evil and not engage it with truth. And that's hard. We have a look-the-other-way approach. Um, we're always afraid, well, I don't have my whole life figured out. I'm not perfect. How can I talk to someone else? If someone, if someone else is going to hurt themselves, and sin always hurts people, why wouldn't we say something to love them? It's hard. Ephesians 4 says, speak the truth in love. The idea that we love and care about people enough to engage them in hard things. Now, some of you here today are listening to this and going, Dave, that's great, but I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. I'm not that kind of person that's way too uncomfortable for me to tell someone that they're harming themselves and harming others and, they're, and to help them to walk with them towards these issues in their life. That's scary. I'll tell you what's more scary is if you're in that place today, you are essentially looking at Jesus and saying to the God of the universe, I know what you want me to do and I'm not doing it. Now, I know how that goes over my family with my children. How much more would you do that to the almighty God of the universe? Disobedience is a big deal for the Christian. If we're not willing to engage evil with truth, if we're not willing to engage people and walk alongside them in love, helping them, we don't really love them. Now, Paul continues... Because it could get harder, right? Love always protects, always trusts, we're in verse 7, always hopes, always perseveres. 
This is something Aaron mentioned last week. Uh, it's a parallelism of structure. It's called a chiasm. Basically, it just means you start with one idea, you talk through it, and you end up at the same idea you started with. And that's what Paul is doing in these simple words here in verse 7. If we're going to love, we better be in it for the long haul. That's what he's saying. It always protects. It always perseveres. Those words are linked. Love always hangs in there for the long haul. You want to know if you love somebody? Got to hang in there for the long haul. That's a fruit of love is endurance. And we live in a world in which we can't endure with something for three days hardly. You know, we go to the, go to the drug store and the pharmacist makes us mad and we're like, I'm changing drug stores. That's it. I'm out of here. Right? We engage with a relationship and it's hard and the first conflict goes, we're not friends anymore, I'm moving on. And we're just so used to bailing and that is not love. That is selfishness. The fruit of love is endurance. Do you know what's driving you? Look at the fruit of your actions and that will tell you whether the motivating factor is love. All right, the last question, the third question. We asked about our motivation and our fruit, and now I want you to ask yourselves about the length of your investment. Long-term investment. Are you invested in love long-term? Verse 8 says this, love never fails. Uh, In the ESV, I actually like that translation a little better here. It says love never ends. Before I read this next section, I need you to understand a concept here that Paul is leaning on heavily. And you need to understand it works itself into every passage in the New Testament. And this is the simple concept of the kingdom of God. We tend to think of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven as something that is only future. We think something's heaven out of the future. We think of clouds and harps and someday we'll go to heaven and float on a cloud. And I always have the stupid cartoon pictures of people floating in diapers and whatnot. And like we just borrow all this from Greek, ancient Greek uh, philosophy. And, And that is not the kingdom of heaven at all. The kingdom of heaven that Paul discusses and the New Testament discusses and Jesus said is the kingdom of God was inaugurated with the resurrection of Jesus. He broke the back and the power of sin. But the full consummation of the kingdom of God doesn't happen until Jesus returns and vanquishes his enemies. So we're in this in-between period time where we are working as agents of the kingdom of God. We have to understand that. Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. There's a real aspect to the kingdom of God today. Now, Paul is going to lean into that in this passage because what he's going to do is he's going to talk about how the kingdom work that we do now should be motivated by love because love is the only thing that's present in this transitionary period where we're living in the new reality and see the old reality all around us, and the future period where the old reality is vanquished. Love is the only thing that makes the transition, Paul says. And we see this because there is one word translated four different ways in this passage that if I didn't point it out to you, it is not readily available in any translation. And so let me just point it out to you as I'm reading it. The word is to be destroyed. It's translated as cease, pass away, disappear, put behind. 
Those are all nuances of the word. They're all good translations, but I love the idea of the consistency that Paul is using here. Read it with me. Love never fails, he says. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, they will cease. There's our word, be destroyed. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. There's our word again. Be destroyed. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. There's again, will be destroyed. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things behind me. There's that word again. I destroyed them. What he's saying here is, now we see but a poor reflection is in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Paul is just setting up this picture to talk about. He's saying right now, the spiritual gifts we have, right now, those are temporary for the purpose of building the kingdom of God of being used as agents or tools of God. But one day when the kingdom of God is consummated fully, those spiritual gifts no longer apply. We won't need them someday. But you know what will remain? Love. Love goes all the way through. Love never fails. Love never ends. Love will never be destroyed. When you look and love people today, You love them for eternity. You see, love is the long game. Spiritual gifts are important. We use them to be agents of God's kingdom doing his work, building up the church. Spiritual gifts are important. But there's a day when they will end. It's coming. Love never ends. Love transitions from this world to the full consummation of God's kingdom. It makes the transition So it makes us ask the question, when we love people, have we thought about love having an impact not only today, but for all eternity? Every month, I try to set aside a little bit of money for retirement. Some of that money goes into the stock market. I have a financial guy whose purpose is to regularly remind me, Dave, we're not playing the short game. We're playing the long game with this. It doesn't matter what happens in five days or even right now this year. What matters is 25 years from now. And I get nervous, you know? Like I was just talking to, to my buddy Matt over here that today. I get nervous. And I'm like, the stock market, when's it all going to crash? And when's it all going to fall apart, you know? Like, should I get out now? And I was just talking to Matt about that. He's like, Dave, If you get out, when are you going to get back in? How do you play this game? It doesn't matter. It's going to go up and down. Just ride it. Play the long game. Uh, I have people like that in my life because I make poor decisions. (laughs) I need people telling me to make good decisions. Uh, That's Paul's point. Your self-exaltation, your obsession with doing things that just make you feel good, that lasts for today. You might get a half an hour out of that. Love lasts for eternity. Invest in the long game. Love people. When you, when you love, you're playing the long game. Love never ends. So really the question now is, do you love people? 
do you love people? Are you playing the long game? When you love the most annoying person in the world that transcends this world and factors into the next, when you love someone enough to sacrifice for them, that has eternal implications. When you take a child whom everyone else blows off and love her, that's eternal. When you love someone enough to speak the truth, it has eternal implications. Love will last forever. Whatever we do in this world for the kingdom should be done with love because it lasts forever. And we end in verse 13. And now these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You need to understand that faith, hope, and love are called the Pauline triad. Paul uses these paired in different orders all throughout his letters. In numerous cases, these faith, hope, and love. And what Paul is not doing, Paul is not saying that, you know, some of these others are more important and whatnot. Paul is just focusing here on this simple idea that of these three, love is the one that transcends into eternity. Faith We have faith, Hebrews says, in what we can't see. We have faith in Christ Jesus, that his death covered over our sins, that he rose from the dead and broke the back of sin and death. We have faith. We have hope that Jesus is coming back. I mean, I get excited about that all the time. I'm hoping for my eventual final salvation. But eventually that will come. But love lasts forever. Love transcends it all. So what's your motivation? Do you serve others? Do you use your spiritual gifts so that you feel good? That's not love. Do you have fruit? Do you have fruit from your love? Is love made manifest in your life? Are you bearing fruit? If you don't see any fruit, there may not be love. And are you invested long term? Have you invested in love for eternity? Because what we're doing now makes an investment forever. Uh, Mozart, uh, the story was told about Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart growing up. When he was a young man, uh, he had already become a good musician. And his father was also a a really accomplished musician. And and Wolfgang Mozart would be out as a young man, uh, living up in the town, staying out late, partying with his friends. His dad, being an old guy like us old guys do, went to bed early. And uh, uh, Mozart, Wolfgang Mozart would come home, and he would love to play a trick on his dad. His dad would be sleeping. He'd go to the piano in the, in the main room, and he would simply, loudly and raucously and slowly play a scale. Each note descending, one after another, till the top of the scale. But instead of finishing the last note, he would leave it hanging. <laughs> and then he would walk and go to bed. And he, he would tell his dad, tossed and turned and stirred and finally couldn't stand and got up and went down and plunked the last note on the keyboard and went to bed. You know, I love that story. I'm sure that he had uh, tricks that he loved to play on his son as well. But I love this story because it's that reminder when we love, it's like we're crawling a scale. And, but, but the notes are calling out for us to finish. Love transcends this world into the next, you guys. And it's calling out to us. Keep loving. 
don't stop because we can't wait for the last note of the scale to transcend into and for all eternity. Let love drive you. It will reap eternal benefits. Let's pray as our worship team comes for the closing song. Heavenly Father, we do love you. And we recognize today, taking this self-evaluation, that we fall short in so many ways. Holy Spirit, would you motivate us, convict us, challenge us, change us to love like Jesus. Give us that heart. Show us the fruit of our life and help us